Well, when I uh, <coughs> soon preach to you uh, from this passage, uh, I'm going to be presenting this sermon in a slightly different way. And as I do that, I uh, just want to explain what I'm doing so it's helpful for you. I'm going to be pretending to host a show. Uh, I felt it just helpful just to make a short note before I do that, to know that I'm not trying to do so because I'm trying to be irreverent in any way. Uh, rather, I actually just hope it's going to help us interact with the passage here uh, and hopefully just get the point home clearly. Uh, furthermore, I want to actually use it as an opportunity uh, for families in particular, and actually anyone, uh, to create discussion at the home. Three characters in particular. And each of these three characters uh, could be a, a discussion point in and of themselves. What do they mean? Uh, and uh, how do they teach us about God's truth here? So as I do that for us, uh, please allow me just to lead us in prayer as we open up God's word together. <clears throat> uh, Father, as we've prayed and sung this morning, Lord, you are uh, a great God in heaven who has declared yourself king over all. For you are our creator, and in Christ you are our redeemer. Father, as we've sung, we pray that you would search us, Lord. Search the depths of about you today, but about ourselves, about our need for Jesus, our need to, to grow in our faith and our, to turn away from sin and the ways of this world. Father, may our ears be open this day to hearing your glorious truth of the gospel, that Christ is indeed King. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to our game show this morning uh, called Who Wants to Be a Christianaire? Or maybe just Who Wants to Be a Christian? Uh, today will be the first and last airing of this show. And I'm excited to be your host this morning, Mr. Preacher. Now, our game show kicks off with some news. That there is a new king in town, King Jesus. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, exclaims these magi. But actually, not only king of the Jews, for in Matthew 28, Jesus himself says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So it turns out that this news is that King Jesus is king over all things and all peoples. And so with this in mind, that Jesus is king... From our passage this morning, we have the opportunity to meet a number of contestants who are going to be joining us on our show this day. Each contestant will be vying for the grand take-home prize of being deemed a Christian, all depending upon their reaction to this news that has been proclaimed. I wonder which of our contestants will find themselves coming home with the winning prize. And so without further ado, I just want to introduce some of our contestants today, beginning with our first contestant, named Mr. Rejection, over here on the left. And what we learn from our passage is that Mr. Rejection is not all that fond of having Jesus as their king and lord of their life. In our passage, Mr. Rejection best describes the character of Herod, 
than actually anyone who responds in a similar way to hearing the news of there being a new king in town. Now, the events of our passage occur sometime after Jesus was born. Uh, exactly how long, we don't actually know. He may have still been a very small infant or perhaps a couple years old by now. Having seen this normal star rising in the sky, in the providence of God, these magi correctly interpret it as showing that someone of significance had been born amongst the Jewish people. They come to Jerusalem exclaiming, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now we're going to come back to these magi soon enough. But for now, let's consider the reaction of Herod when he heard these words spoken. We see this in verse 3 where it begins. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled here could easily uh, could be translated even more strongly, maybe being in turmoil or even terrified. Now, it's helpful for us to understand who this Herod was. This is Herod I or Herod the Great. Herod was half Jew, half Idumean, which were a people south of Judah. Herod was known as a shrewd and gifted political leader. He was a great builder of public facilities, as well as being able to shrewdly deal with both the great Roman powers of the day, as well as to contend with and rule over the Jews in Judea. He was also brutal, laying oppressive taxes on the Jews and forcing Jews to carry out hard manual labor. In this way, some commentators, I think rightly, See Matthew and Herod alluding to Pharaoh back in Exodus, who also was a ruler who oppressed God's people. Now, the history books tell us that Herod, as he got older, became more and more paranoid of threats against his person and his throne. He had many, including some of his own wives and sons, put to death because he feared plots to overthrow him. To a man like Herod, any news of there being another king in town was bad news. He would remain king himself at all costs. Although his paranoia was unique to him and his circumstances, his reaction to the news that Jesus is king is not unique to him, being much more widespread throughout the ages of human history. And in fact, the Bible affirms that because of indwelling sin, every person that is born today, except Jesus himself, is by nature born as Mr. Rejection in their souls and remains so unless God works his salvation in them. And so it's worth us asking this morning, what characterizes Mr. Rejection? And this response to Jesus Well, you could say that it is overt and obvious and outright rejection, animosity, even hostility to the idea that Christ is king. For as Christ was king of their life, quite naturally, Christ would require them to live their lives in accordance with his ways. 
and that Jesus' God would then become their object of worship. Something that is abhorred to many today. Instead, they join Mr. Rejection. How? With a similar heart attitude to Herod, but clothing and presenting this attitude with things like self-determinism and freedom. Self-determinism and freedom are beliefs in our culture that we are masters of our own life. And as such, we should be free to live however we like and should not be judged by any external source and certainly not by God. Under such thinking, if we feel and desire for something, then as long as it appears not to be harming anyone else, we should be free to pursue that pursuit. I mean, sounds pretty good, right? But these ideas of, self, of, of freedom, how the culture defines freedom, and self-determinism may seem positive and attractive and actually right by many but are actually outright rejection of having Jesus as king. Our culture tends to think and believe, well, if God is a God of love, he will surely, he has to accept me for who I am, no matter how I live and what gains my primary attention and adoration. But this flies in the face of scripture, with, which consistently calls out sin for what it is. And exclaims there to, and Scripture exclaims that there is a God above who cares how we live and what our hearts really worship, whether it's Him or something else or someone else. Such a heart responds with anger when, say, things like biblical morals are esteemed as what is best for human flourishing and what are wholesomely good. And holy and caring. For example, our culture says that part of this freedom we should have is to express our sexuality however we please. And instead, when we think of the Bible's message, would respond in anger when the biblical model of sex, which is solely between a married heterosexual couple, is esteemed as being the way to go. For example, our culture says that we ought to choose whatever gender we feel. And responds in is read, and Christians instead seek to honor the God-given bodily gender given by us at conception. For example, our culture says that you are free to maximize self-pleasure in whatever form it takes, rather than selflessly dedicating a life to loving and kind of responds to anger when the Bible calls us to live selfless giving lives, giving up your life for others. For example, it's responding to anger when someone claims to know the truth at all, whereby responding exactly the same way that Pontius Pilate did all those years ago. In John 18.38, Pilate said, What is truth? That's kind of what a lot of people are asking and saying today. For many in our culture, claiming that there is any truth is deemed offensive and actually kind of arrogant because it's like, well, how do you know any better than me? 
Although somehow the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, could get away with it, where she claimed during COVID to be the single source of truth, saying, we will continue to be your single source of truth, and unless you hear it from us, it's not the truth. Sorry to burst your bubble, Jacinta, but only God in his word can claim truth. And through his word, the Bible is making that claim. That, that is an offensive claim for our culture today. The message that Jesus himself gave in John 14.6 certainly pours hot coals on the fire when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The gospel is offensive. Yes, it's extraordinarily attractive, but it's also offensive. It challenges our sin for what it is. It calls us out. For Herod, accepting Jesus meant stepping aside and allowing the true king of Israel to take the throne. And it would have meant changing the way he was living. As Mr. Rejection, he was not willing to do so. Likewise, for all of us today, the call of the gospel and God is to examine our hearts to see if we're responding like Mr. Rejection. Now that's something that not only unbelievers should consider today, but also every Christian. For the Christian too ought to consider and reflect on aspects in our own lives that are yet to conform to Christ's kingship and our ongoing battle against sin. So there's our first contestant that we meet on our show today, Mr. Rejection, who has very outwardly, uh, in a very obvious way, just declared himself uh, rejecting the gospel. He's not interested in having another king in his life. But we need to know that Mr. Rejection has a close cousin as well, who we also need to meet and recognize. Although it's obvious in their reaction to Jesus, their reaction and heart attitude is no less deadly, according to our passage. This close cousin to Mr. Rejection is our next, next contestant, Miss Apathy, who's joining us here down the front. A person who characterizes the Jewish leaders who failed to seek out King Jesus. Now we begin to meet them in the rest of verse 3. It says there again, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with The holy city as a whole was troubled at the news of their Messiah being born. What are we to make of this? Were the people troubled mainly because this might bring more trouble upon them from Herod, who they knew would not be pleased? Or were they too openly rejecting Jesus as king? Now, I think it's a bit difficult to know for sure. Commentators are divided on how they see that comment. But what we can say at the very least, I think is crystal clear and how that he then shows how that relates uh, and joins with the response of the chief priests and the scribes in the verses that follow. What follows in verse 5 and 6 is 
uh, the assembling of these religious elites who come together in Jerusalem at the calling of Herod. Now, we don't know if Herod assembled all these chiefs, priests, and scribes in one large group or two separate groups, uh, because the two groups actually came from uh, in the Sanhedrin, were made up of different groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who kind of bitterly opposed each other. Either way, it's, our text just simply says that Herod counsels with them and ascertains from them, from the Old Testament, uh, about what the wise men were coming to say. And these uh, chief priests and Pharisees show King Herod that uh, King, King, this, uh, in the Old Testament it was prophesied that there would be a coming king. That the Messiah would be born and would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew shows this for us by quoting uh, here from, Matthew, uh, from Micah. In chapter 5 there, it speaks of a prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and be born in Bethlehem. But what is mind-boggling is what the reaction the chief priests and the scribes have to this news themselves. Do you hear the sound of crickets? Or just my child? Nothing. Nothing happens. None of these Jewish leaders appear to follow these magi and go and meet Jesus. This kind of seems a bit mind-boggling. These, of all men, should have known better. They were the ones entrusted with God's Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures that were soaked to the brim like a soaking wet sponge with the promise of a coming Messiah. They of all people should have known better and cheered on with glee at the news that their Messiah had finally come. And such is the same with all who hear the news that Christ is King but fail in their heart of hearts to actually come to Him as their personal King. Miss Appen- chief priests and scribes, the gospel, but fail to truly get out. And just like these chief priests and scribes who were in these religious circles, it is possible to even attend church regularly and maybe your whole life never truly get it. Now, on the one hand, I don't want to unhelpfully rock the faith, faith of the genuine Christian who is struggling with their assurance of faith, who previously has genuinely experienced God's salvation in their hearts, but for whatever reason, find their present experience of faith in Christ to be weak and frail. If that is you today, may Christ warm your heart with fresh assurance and peace. May he bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, and may he grant you his peace. On the other hand, I do not wish to take away from the clear warning in our passage. True biblical Christianity is not experience-driven, devoid of biblical truth and doctrine. But it is not absent 
of experience either. Rather, it's biblical truth and doctrine that is meant to lead us to genuine experience of faith and assurance in Christ. As the Holy Spirit works in our soul and shines the light of Jesus in us. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door to salvation. Have you in faith walked through the door and found eternal life? I mean, there's no point standing around at the entrance and never walking in. Miss Apathy might not respond with the same anger or overt rejection of Jesus as Mr. Rejection does. But Miss Apathy at her heart is still rejecting Jesus as her Lord and Savior, never truly coming to living water and actually drinking of the riches of Christ, having their hearts warmed and brought alive by God, the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as fence-sitters in God's kingdom. You're either in or out, alive in Christ or dead in your sins. And so even though Miss Apathy might consider herself kind of sitting here in the middle somewhere, not angry at the call of Christ as king, but also not being moved to joy, she actually really belongs over here next to her cousin, Mr. Rejection. And so she walks over here and joins him on this side. It's time now then for us to meet our third and final contestant this morning. Over here on the right, let's meet adoring Anna. A character who describes the Magi and their adoration and worship of King Jesus. Coming back now to these Magi in our narrative... Matthew actually gives us limited details about their identity. What we know is that they're from the east somewhere, likely from Arabia, Babylon, or Persia. And Matthew tells us that they are magi, which the ESV translates wise men. Now, as magi, as I said earlier, they're not kings themselves, but as one commentator kind of describes them as prominent priestly professionals. As such, they were Gentiles, non-Israelites. Uh, from, for a comparable example, uh, maybe you might think of the book of Daniel, uh, where King Nebuchadnezzar had magicians and enchanters, sorcerers and Chaldeans who would be called upon to try and interpret dreams and give him wisdom. <clears throat> now, as a whole, Scripture denounces those who would pursue pagan religions and practices like this, non-biblical approaches to spirituality. Uh, for example, in Acts 13, verse 6, uh, it speaks there of the missionaries uh, Saul and, and Barabbas. It says, When they had gone through the whole island, as, they, as far as uh, Paphos, or Paphros, um, they come upon a certain magician. It's the same word, magi. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, what's intriguing in Matthew 2 is that Matthew doesn't paint a negative picture of them at all here. Why is this? Because it is only these magi, or I say adoring Anna, who's responding correctly towards Christ. 
quite naturally, these uh, opening verses of, the, of this chapter in chapter 2 might throw up some questions for us uh, that you might be asking yourself. For one, what is this nature of this star that's in the sky? Some have tried to argue maybe it's a comet or maybe an alignment of planets uh, that was bright, a bit brighter in the sky, or maybe even a supernova. But perhaps the best explanation is to simply just see it as a miraculous occurrence. Uh, seeing that God is providentially working in that way rather than through ordinary means. Given that down in verse 9, the star seems to move and rest directly over the town of Bethlehem. Furthermore, you might be asking yourself, well, how did these magi even know to interpret this phenomenon, phenomena correctly? I mean, does this mean that we too ought to look for stars, uh, signs in the sky? Maybe you're here thinking, well, based on Matthew 2, maybe getting my daily dose of horoscopes and zodiac signs is not such a bad idea after all. That's, that's No, that's not what our passage is emphasizing at all. It's true that God is acting in an extraordinary way in this given moment, choosing to use this miraculous sign above to speak into a very pivotal moment in human history as he fulfills Old Testament prophecy as Jesus came to earth. Yet even this miraculous sign only gains its true significance from the word of God, from divine revelations in the scriptures. Despite all their worldly wisdom, it was God's truth that ultimately mattered. Having this star lead them to Jerusalem, uh, it still was required Jewish leaders, leaders to open up their Old Testament scriptures and teach these magi where to find Jesus. And there he's quote, it says that, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So what do we learn about adoring Anna and her response to Jesus? What does it mean to be responding correctly to Jesus and to the gospel? Well, firstly, we see from, their, from the narrative that their response was one that actually cost them. It was a costly response. It's costly to have Christ as your king. For one, for these magi, the cost was economical. These magi gave, gave gifts fit for a king. Alluding again to Old Testament scripture, like the queen of Sheba that gave gifts to King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. Likewise, these magi gave Jesus substantial and expensive gifts. But not only that, they were willing to travel this long distance to meet Jesus. Out of all the people in our narrative, they are the ones that traveled all the way from the east. They were desperate to come to Jesus. The cost for them was also social. Being willing to put their reputation on the line and to submit themselves to a new king who was only a small child in their eyes at this time. And you could say the cost could be described as spiritual, in the sense that, the, that Christ became their object of worship. 
rather than worshipping themselves or some other pagan deity. They are saying that this person deserves my worship. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself calls his disciples to count the cost of being one of saying that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my, my disciple. Elsewhere, he called followers to pick up his cross and follow him. Having Christ as your king accepts Christ as Lord over all of your life. Not just, metaphorically speaking, the spare bedroom in the house that you weren't using all that much anyway. Second, we learn from our passage that not only is it costly to be a disciple, like adoring Anna, shown by these magi, means to be, have a genuine, joyful heart that worships Christ as King, knowing that He is Lord of your life, choosing to follow Him despite the cost and experiencing utmost joy of knowing God in Christ. In this way, adoring Anna finds herself taking home the prize in our game show, not because of her own good works, but because Christ is her King. And so out of all the contestants today, if you're honest with yourself this morning, who do you most identify with? Mr. Rejection or Miss Apathy, who ultimately reject Christ as their king. Or adoring Anna, whose heart attitude in life shows that she has accepted Christ as her king. But we have to ask ourselves this morning, why is this news that Christ is king and the new king in town kind of good news? Why should it bring joy to the human heart? even if it is so costly to have him as our king and to be his disciple. Well, the gospel teaches us that it is because of the ultimate and infinite cost that Christ paid for us. When he laid down his life for you and me on the cross, bearing the guilt of sin upon himself so that all who might believe in him may be forgiven and made alive and new in him. For unlike a king like Herod, who is oppressive and overbearing, for the Christian who truly experiences Christ as their Lord, lordship is light. It's meant to be an easy yoke to carry, despite its cost. Knowing that Christ as king is someone who suffered as a suffering king, and first loved you. Born not in a big and bustling town of Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of nowhere, which reflected his lowly and humble nature. Being a king who wants us to follow him in joy, knowing him as your joy, because of the great love in which he has poured out for you, for his people. Do you know this love of God for yourself? Love that draws you to him. Love that naturally causes you to want to follow him and seek to please him with all of your life. 
to give up your life and live for him because he gave up his life for you? Is your heart responding like this, like adoring Anna, or instead like Mr. Rejection or Miss Apathy? The call of the gospel to have Christ as your king is no game at all. It is a matter of choice between life and death, heaven and hell, eternal sorrow or eternal joy. What will it be for you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our passage has declared that there is a new king in town, that King Jesus, you are king on the throne. And Father, that is news that is both so positive and actually so challenging for us. Father, in our sin, we don't naturally want a new king. We want to be king ourselves. And Father, all of us have been born sinners. Our nature was to reject you, to rebel against you to bring dishonor to your name rather than the glory that you deserve. Father, how lowly in our sin have we treated you. How terrible has it been that we have offended the most holy and precious being that exists, the most beautiful being, the most glorious being, And Father, we are just thankful as your people to know that despite how we have offended you and that we deserve nothing except your justice against us and against sin, that Father, that you have made a way open to know your grace and salvation, that in your mercy you decide to send your son Jesus into this world to save the lost to save those without any hope, to save the wretched sinner. Father, may that news be good news for our souls this day. Father, as we consider the cross and what you sacrificed for us, that as a lowly suffering servant, you came and died the death that we deserved. You did that out of love, Lord, for us. And we thank you that as your people, you have redeemed us. That in your sight, we are considered precious. That we are your treasured possession. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that in Jesus, and as we seek his face in faith, that we have the opportunity for a fresh new start. Lord, that, that we can be, every believer here today, known to be a forgiven sinner, that we are forgiven of our sins and accepted in Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, that that news and that reality might be made alive in our hearts this day by the Holy Spirit. That, Father, that would bring us great joy. And, Father, as we respond to that, our hearts worship you and give us, give you all the praise and glory that is due unto your name. For it is unto you that every knee shall bow, every tongue confesses that one day you, 
all that will be true of all, that you are king on high. Father, I also pray for anyone here that doesn't yet know Jesus, that they find themselves apathetic in their faith or rejecting your lordship. Father, would you have mercy on them? Show them that their sin ends in ruin. But also show them the riches of your grace, that there is a way to turn, uh, in, I guess, have a new life in you. And that through your work in them, that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And Father, as we head out into our week this week, and we think about what does Christ being King mean for us in all of our life, Lord? I pray, Lord, that all of our life would indeed reflect that reality, that you'd help us to turn away from our sin and joyfully follow you, whatever and no matter what that cost is. Father, we confess we can't do that in our own strength, but we pray that through your Spirit you'd empower us to do that, that we'd live honourable names that uh, show that there is a king in our life, and that we would hold up your name on high. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.